Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest here on West Coast Live is the poet Hetty Jones, and her major autobiography, How I Became Hetty Jones, is going to be republished by Grove Press next year, in March, in March as well as other collections of her poetry. And it's, uh, it's very curious that so much of your publicity refers to you by who you were married to for a short time when you were in, tw- in your 20s. Uh, and very, with, with curious, very curious, very curious. <laughs> and this was the, uh, the poet Leroy Jones. That's right. Uh, and how, uh, is this part of the disappearance of Hetty Cohen in some way? Well, I suppose so. It was a transition period, I think, becoming the Mrs. that led to the Hetty Jones all by herself, Ms., if you want to call her that. Um, but uh, both of those people kind of disappeared, the Hetty Cohen and the Mrs. Jones, and now I am who I am, sitting well, right in front of you. And also, I think Leroy Jones disappeared as well. That's right. So I got the Jones. <laughs> <laughs> there was a t- in your autobiography, you write as being a little girl and sort of waving into the air and realizing that at some point you would have to leave your parents, who, who just would never understand who you were or what you wanted to be. Right. I think p- some people come to consciousness very, very early, and I guess I did. Uh, I was so very young when I realized that Art was what I was after in some way or another, and that I just couldn't live that kind of regular, I guess, middle-class life, if you want to call it that, that I just couldn't have the two-car garage and whatever I would have to give up to be it. And you found yourself in the, in the village in New York in the early 1950s. I found myself there, yeah. I landed there, let's say. <laughs> one, of the, uh, one of the important aspects of that life was, was jazz, was, was the music. And at the time, jazz was uh, distributed if it wasn't live, it was on Brittle 78s. Uh, and, and you worked for a publication that dealt with collectors of these. How did you view collectors of, of jazz? Oh, we called them moldy figs. <laughs> <laughs> and they were weird people, but I've come to realize what a wonderful service they did. Because here was an art form that was really alive only on these very brittle 78s and in what a very few people wrote. And if they hadn't existed to collect it, it would never exist for us later on LP and CD. So they performed a great service. We should all be very grateful to them. But at the time, it also seemed to to freeze jazz, which at the time was also viewed as, as the liveliest of the American art forms. Right, that's why they were considered moldy figs. They kind of liked people like Bessie Smith and Jimmy Lunsford and all the people who were long gone. But um, they were archivists, really. And, uh, but they did keep early Charlie Parker records, too. So we have a lot to thank them for. Now, Leroy Jones showed up to, uh, to help out with the, 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 uh, the publication of the magazine that you were working on. And eventually, you guys fell in together. Um, you were the first of the very visible interracial couples in Greenwich Village. Were you uniformly uh, accepted by your fellow open-minded beats? Well, nobody ever said anything. I don't think anyone would have dared say anything that would have really uh, destroyed their image as open-minded people. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I think a lot of people thought that I was getting into some kind of a mess, especially when I had kids. 
when I first started to have kids, because I think you could be an interracial couple and everybody saw you as, oh, the dude and the lady, something like that. But uh, when, when you showed everyone how serious you were by really being a family, um, then people were a little less willing, wow, how are you gonna do that, you know? Hey man, that's hard. <laughs> Wasn't there a time when, when uh, you and another couple uh, were gonna move into a flat, the, the four of you and the child, and they were paid not to move in with you? Oh yeah, you do good homework. <laughs> um, yeah, we got this big apartment that we really couldn't afford, and we had this other couple, and we said, well, well, we'll live at one end, and you guys live at the other end, and we had it all set up. We were going to split the rent. And then one of their fathers uh, just came with some money, you know, and said, no, no, no. Uh, you don't want to live with those people. That's bad. They're interracial. So we were stuck with this big place with a big rent. It was $125. That was a lot. <laughs> Well, and, uh, and, uh, you were, but you were earning like a dollar a day at different jobs, right? Uh, a dollar an hour. A dollar a day dollar is what they pay prisoners. <laughs> well, that's, that's considerably better than I, of course. The, for a long time, as, as Leroy Jones became popular as a, as a poet of that era, and you had children, you discovered that, that what? You began to become more and more invisible. Well, I think... Every woman finds that when suddenly, you know, uh, she started out to be a career woman or someone with ambitions toward art and suddenly finds herself alone in the living room with a two-month-old baby in her arms and there's no noise at all. It's just silence and, and um, there doesn't seem to be anything going on in your life. There's no content. The only thing you hear are... Wah, wah, wah. And <laughs> you can't really answer that too much. Uh, I think that I realized that this was a woman's life wherever she was, whether, I, whether in the middle of the beat scene or in the suburbs. And so I began to identify more with women. It's a consciousness-raising thing, I think. I was struck when watching the movie Pull My Daisy, which shows sort of a day in the life of the beats filmed in New York, that it's in, in essence all the boys who get together and then go out and play, leaving the mother home with the child to get the child ready to go. The, the woman was specifically excluded from their activities. Uh-huh. She stayed home and kept the home fires burning. Uh, I think this, this can really either make you or break you. You've got to be able to see, and I think this is a situation that hasn't gone away. You have to see what your life can be like. And once you take hold of it and take control of your own life, then you can go on from there and make sure you get to go to the party too. But I was lucky the parties came to me. <laughs> <laughs> what, was the, what was the incident that, uh, in which Hetty Cohen actually disappeared for good? Oh, I, I, uh, I was working then. I, I had managed to go back to my, I, I was the girl who ran the office at the Partisan Review, girl, right? Um, and, uh, well, we, uh, we had to ditch the phone bill because Leroy had gone to Cuba and we had a, a lot of bills, so we, we had, and the phone was in my name, so, uh, we had to let Hetty Cohen go. <laughs> 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 so 
So they called the office uh, where I was working and wanted to know where she was. And I said, well, well, I'm so sorry. She no longer works here. Uh, I don't know where she is now. And then I, as I wrote, I think, the words out and gone, I felt as if I dismissed an old friend. But that was it for Hetty Cohen. And I called home, and Roy made a big joke about it. And, uh, but, but I felt I owed myself something for all my grand ambition, all I'd ever become, because I wanted to become something. All I'd ever become was Hetty Jones. So that's, it was a turning point in my life. And what was the turning point where you began to take your voice from being an internal monologue and, and began to put it on the page? Well, I'd, I'd always wanted to write books for children, even when I was in college. I had a little traveling. I don't have a degree in lit. I'm a drama major. Ta-da. And so uh, I used to have a little traveling roadshow of uh, little skits and stories for children. And after I had children, one day I realized that the language that children used was very, very close to the, the the poetry voice that I wanted. I wanted it as simple as William Carlos Williams, as simple as Miles Davis's, those clear, ambivalent notes. And uh, I decided I would just go back to my original idea that I was going to write books for children. And eventually I did. It took another 10 years. But um, then I published children's books. And that way, through that simplicity, I developed my own poetic voice. And then I knew I could write long lines like Allen Ginsberg eventually. <laughs> so you had to go through sort of a literary childhood, literally as well as figuratively. Yes, that's true. That's true. So I kind of raised myself. A lot of people say, who nurtured you? That's kind of a conundrum. Myself, myself. I nurtured me. I'd like to hear one of your poems. Good. Can I have a drink of water first? <laughs> This I call my signature poem. Um, one of my daughters said, don't ever read that poem again, Ma, because it's gender identified. But I said, oh, well, what the hell? <clears throat> this refers to some major New York highways, but I think you guys will understand it. Saturday, the stuffed bears were up again over the Major Deegan, dancing in plastic along the bridge rail, under a sky half misty, half blue, and there were white clouds blowing in from the west, which would have been enough for one used to pleasure in small doses. But then later, at sunset, driving north along the sawmill in a high wind with clouds big and drifting above the road like animals proud of their pink underbellies, in a moment of intense light, I saw an Edward Hopper house, at once so exquisitely light and dark that I cried all the way up Route 22, those uncontrollable tears, as though the body were crying. And so, young women, here's the dilemma, itself the solution. I have always been, at the same time, woman enough to be moved to tears and man enough to drive my car in any direction.
One of the, the jazz singers that you clearly loved was, was Billie Holiday, and, and her lyrics clearly spoke to you in a way that your parents didn't get. Oh, yeah. That's true. I, I, uh, one of the last times, uh, when, when I married, my family disowned me. And uh, if, you, if you think that doesn't still happen, I've gotten letters from people after my memoir was published. I got a lot of fan mail from around the country. And I got, I've gotten letters from young women saying, help me, help me, no one understands. I'm going to do this. And I write back and tell them, just do it, you know, just go ahead and do it. But one of the last times I was with my mother um, was the, one of the only times that Billy was ever on television. And uh, Billy sang, love is like a faucet, it turns off and on. Just when you think it's on, baby, it has turned off and gone. And my mother said, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I guess she didn't know, but I already did. <laughs> What's this poem here? Well, I guess my poetic voice didn't, I didn't have a chance to come out while my children were very little and I was so busy trying to publish magazines. You know, we had a press, we had a magazine, we, we published a lot of books, and I had a full-time job, so there was a lot to do. So when I began to write, I, some of my poems are looking back and this one is the title of my first poetry book called Having Been Her. On the bus from New York to New York, the baby pukes into the fox collar of her only coat. She wipes the collar and the baby's soft face, then takes her toddler by the hand and heads for the subway, where the toddler sleeps at her knee and she herself stares out the window over the head of the sleeping baby. She is 27 and very tired. Let me always support her, having been her, befriend her. That's for all you women out there. <laughs> Hattie Jones. Most everyone that uh, was in your, uh, your beat circle at the time there in the village seemed to be in their earlier mid-twenties. Looking back now, does that seem to be startlingly young for? Well, I come into contact with people all the time who are in their earlier mid-twenties because I teach. And um, I find young people very thoughtful these days. And uh, despite the fact that people say there's nothing to them, they just, they're airheads, they watch television, blah, blah, blah. They think, they think about a fair number of things. It was young. It was, it was particularly innocent and unexposed to a lot of things. Uh, but I still feel 25 at heart anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you have a, a poem here in which you play with words and spacing on the page. Oh, yeah. You know, after a while, um, well, when you do get old enough, I ain't 25 no more. Although, of course, I do look 25. Um, I've, I've turned my attention to issues of race and issues uh, that really impact on us all. In fact, on the, uh, in the cab on the way over here today, I looked out at a park that, or a schoolyard that I passed, and, 
And there was something that was really reminiscent of New York. It was a, a person sleeping under cardboard boxes. And uh, that's homelessness is an issue we address all the time in New York. And I see you address it out here, too. And I know in the middle of the country, people do as well. And somebody asked me to do a poem for an art project that had to do with the issue of homelessness. And so I wrote this poem that's kind of visual. But what I wanted to do was address it instead of addressing the issue of homelessness, address what home means to us. What does home mean? And so that's what this is. It requires lots of breath and lots of shelter. Home, deep to the heart as the truth strikes home. Ladybug, ladybug, fly away home. Home in, home is the sailor. Home from the sea, the hunter, home from the hills. Welcome home, safe home, home port, home base. Harvest home, home of the brave. Be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. Chickens come home to roost. Charity begins at home. Home is where the heart is. Home is where you hang your hat. Home sweet home, make yourself at home. You'd be so nice to come home to. Something to write home home about. A man's home is his castle. Keep the home fires burning till the cows come home. Lassie come home. Bring home the bacon for hearth and home. Home brew. Don't leave home without it. To market, to market, to buy a fat pig. Home again, home again. Jiggity jig. This little piggy stayed home. Ate us out of house and home. Home folks. Homegrown, homebound, homeboy, homegirl, home team, home game, home run, home plate, down home, homestead, home front, home ground, home stretch, all the way home. Home at last home free. Hetty Jones. Quickly, when you, when you did the typography for that and laid it out on the paper, there's, there's a pattern of, uh, of untyped on space. Yeah. In there goes homeless, tempest-tossed, and whatever Bob Dylan wrote about um, with no direction home. So how would you feel if you were in the X? Hetty Jones. Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org.